verses 1 to 31. So Genesis 1 and first one and verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered together, be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Well, dear friends, we continue to study the first chapter of Genesis and the history of creation as we find it there. This morning, I would like you to think with me about the book of Genesis, and especially these first chapters of Genesis, and why they are here. You could think that Moses wrote these books, right? All five books of the Pentateuch. Moses wrote those books, and uh, he wrote out that history as he was able to discover it in documents of the time and as God revealed it directly to him. However, he may have came across the information. But Moses, he penned these books, didn't he? He wrote these books out. Why? For what reason? Israel Israel had left Egypt and was now trudging their way through the wilderness. And Moses writes out these books of the Pentateuch. He writes out the law of God. He writes out all these instructions, all these words for the people of God. And why? For what reason? Well, certainly it was to teach Israel, to instruct them in their religion and what they needed to know to live and to walk before God in a way that honored and glorified Him. But you know, dear friends, the the principles of a Christian worldview are so imprinted in our minds, right, having been taught these things from our youngest days, you might say we took them in with our mother's milk, right? It's, it's so in our DNA that it's hard for us, isn't it, to, to, to try to think any other way, to try to, to try to imagine what it must be like to live in a person's mind who does not believe in an almighty, transcendent God and a creator of the universe. It's hard for us to, to think that way. And that's a good thing, of course, right? Well, that's what we want for our children. We want our children to grow up knowing these principles Cold, right? But now when you think about Israel, Israel was not that way. Israel had not grown up with the word of God so instilled in them like this, right? Israel had grown up in Egypt. What did they see around them in Egypt? I'm told that there were over 1,400 deities in ancient Egyptian religion. And Israel sees all this. And you can imagine that uh, the instruction that they received from God, that they, they, they took that in, they believed it, but... There were all these questions, no doubt, in their mind. What is this religion? And here's another, here's the Hittites. They have their religion. They have their deities and the Sumerians and the Ammonites and the Edomites, right? And the Moabites are worshiping this god named Chemosh, right? And the Philistines have their god and and Dagon, right? As we read in, in the scripture. And there's all these theologies swirling about in the ancient Near East. But now God must, must teach, he must instruct his people, And in order to do that, he gives them a history. He gives them a story. Now that's that's different. That's that's not typically how we teach, is it? Well, but hang on here. It is kind of how we teach because that's how we teach children, right? We give them storybooks. I don't think any of you got out the Heidelberg Catechism when your children were four years old, right, to teach them, right? Uh, You may have it in your own mind and you tried to instruct them that way, right? But you more than likely got a Bible storybook of some kind. And you did what God does. He gives the stories 
to teach his children about himself. And so, congregation, what we have here in the book of Genesis in chapter 1 and 2 and 3, and really right on in through the book of Kings and Chronicles and Samuel, we have theology. We have to think of it that way. We have books of theology. These are books that are meant to teach us about God. This is not just history written down for the sake of recording past events. This is history with a purpose. It is history with a goal. It is a, it's history intentionally written to teach us about God. And now Genesis 1, in, in a huge way, in a, in a way even beyond what the other histories in Scripture, Genesis 1 is given us to teach us about God. And as Israel comes out of Egypt, that's, that's in the, my first point there, is why Genesis and Israel in Egypt, right, with all these deities. And now we have the reason, the first reason I'm giving you, why God had this history recorded by Moses, why God revealed this information to Moses. And the first reason given us then is because it is theology. God is going to teach his people who he is. And I gave you that quote by Calvin. Calvin says this so many times repeatedly in his writings. You know, Calvin must have loved creation. Okay? And, and it's not hard to imagine why. Where did Calvin live? He lived in Geneva. I've never been to Geneva, but I went online to look. And Geneva is surrounded on all sides by mountains. Right? These, these mountain peaks. And the, the scenery was fantastic. And, uh, and Calvin loved creation. And look what he writes here. He says, For God clothes himself, so to speak, with the image of the world in which he would present himself to our contemplation. They who will not deign or they who will not lower themselves to behold him thus magnific magnificently arrayed in the incomparable vesture or clothing of the heavens and the earth afterwards suffer the just punishment of their proud contempt in their own ravings. Calvin never minced words. Therefore, as soon as the name of God sounds in our ears, or the thought of him occurs to our minds, let us clothe him with this most beautiful ornament. Finally, let the world become our school, if we desire rightly to know God. And now God takes his children as they trudge their way through the wilderness. He says, let's go to school. I'm going to take you to school. And I want you to see. I want you to understand who I am. And Moses gives them Genesis 1 and 2, the story of creation. Now the second reason, dear friends, pertains really more to the histories that follow. To the histories that follow. And that is that the, the, the history that we have is our history. You might say it's our story, right? When I look out the congregation, right, I see people... And I, I see last names, right? I can see Webb and DeYoung and Parton and, and Inglesma, right? I, and, and with each of those names and with your name, right, there is a, there is a, there's a story. There's a, there's a back, we even say that sometimes, right? The back story, right? We have a story behind that, right? Where you have parents, you have grandparents, you have the story of you coming together in marriage, of your own children. We have a story, don't we? Well, Israel also has a story, right? And of course, their story is about God. And about how God rescued them from the land of Egypt, brought them through the wilderness, and so on and so forth. Gave them Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The rescue of Joseph in Egypt. That's all Israel's story. And that story defines who they are. Just like your last name defines who you are. And your story defines so much of who you are. And your history is so closely tied up with your identity as a person. 
And so, uh, I'm not going to say so much more about that, but that'll become clear later in the book of Genesis. But certainly, uh, for the first reason here, that Genesis 1 is a book of theology. So then let's turn to this history. Because now we have the creation week that has given us day 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, where God brought the world into creation. And let me try to show you then how this is a book of theology. So I gave you these six things on the outline, which you can see in each day. Each day there are these six items. So first you have the introduction. Right? And then let's just look at the first day as an example. Then God said. Then God said. If you drop down to verse 6, then God said. That's the second day. Then the third day. Then God said. That's the introduction. It's the introductory word. In congregation, you can see already, can't you? Who's this about? Then God said. This is a book of theology, isn't it? Then God said. And in case you missed it, the fourth day and the fifth day and the sixth day, then God said. Now the second and the third one really should go together. I mean for those to be bound up together. The word and the fulfillment. So returning to the first day, let there be light. There is the word. And that is the creative word, right? God's word that brings out of nothing. The creative word and the fulfillment. And there was light. And the reason I say that those two should be bound together, because it shows that there is no separation, that there is no separation between what God says and what happens. What God says happens. Not 99% of the time. No, 100% of the time, when God speaks, it happens. When there's a word, the word is fulfilled. No separation between those two things, right? We make lots of plans some of them come to fruition. Sometimes they come partially true, right? Sometimes they fall completely flat, but never so with God. There is a word and there is fulfillment. Again, I ask you, who is this about? Word and fulfillment. In the fourth, we have the naming. The naming. So back to the first day. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Now, you'll notice that this naming seems to occur only on the first three days. So if you go to the second day, God called the dry land earth. I'm sorry, that's the third day. The second day is uh, God made the expanse, right, or the sky, the heavens, right? And, and God called the expanse in verse 8, God called the expanse heaven or sky. We would, we would call it the sky. And then in verse 9, uh, we have the beginning of the third day, and in verse 10, God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. Now, it changes, though, because then in the, in the other days, we don't see so much naming, but we do see God blessing. We see God blessing. And, and if you go to the last two days, so if you go to uh, verse 22, which is now in the fifth day, God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. And then in the very last day, uh, in verse 28, God blessed them. That's after he created man. And God said to them, and so on and so forth. So we have God naming and God blessing. Now, naming and blessing, uh, in the, in the, especially in the ancient uh, Near East, in the ancient context, right, in their mind, was not just giving a name to something, but it was exercising a sovereignty over it. It was, it was uh, owning it. Um, 
I can't remember if I, if I preached that here or not, but you remember that there was this uh, time when Joab captured the, a city of the Ammonites. And remember, he had, uh, he had conquered it, but not completely. But he calls David to come down. He says, David, come down and, and finish up the job I started. We, all you've got to do is go finish it up. And then this city will be called after your name. Right? In other words, Dave, David will exercise uh, sovereignty over that city. It'll be his city. He'll own it. It's not so different, uh, uh, children, when you take a book, right? And sometimes you see, in, well, here it is, Property of Covenant United Reformed Church, right? It's named. This is, the church owns this book, right? And sometimes people will put, you know, this book belongs to the library of so-and-so. And so when God names things, he's exercising sovereign control over it. He is, you might say, laying claim to it. He's owning it. Again, another example, as you remember, when the explorers came from Europe, and when they came to the, to the, uh, to the New World, right, they came to America. I'm just thinking of Hudson, right? And he came up the river there, and he, he called it Hudson Bay. He named it. And he declared all this land is, is the king of England's, right? He named it. He, we now own it. It's ours. So naming, it's not just a simple giving of a name to something, but it's God saying, this is mine. I now exercise my sovereign control over this. And then we have the divine commendation, right? Which, again, does not happen on the first or second days, but if you drop down to the third day, you can see uh, that in verse 12, at the end of verse 12, and God saw that it was good. And this divine commendation then appears each time. In verse 18, and God saw that it was good. And in verse 21, and God saw that it was good until at the end he looks over the whole thing and says, and God saw that it was very good. A divine commendation, a divine approval. It's beautiful, it pleases him. And then finally, the concluding formula, the conclusion, which we see each time again, and there was evening and there was morning, the first day, the second day, the third day, and so on and so forth. And so I take you back, congregation, to think about those days of creation. And who is this about? Because again, that's the point I want to drive home this morning, that this is a book of theology. And what did it teach Israel? What did it teach Israel? What was the specific thing that this particular story taught the children of Israel about God? Well, this is it. It taught them that God does not operate within this world. He's not in the system. Or maybe I shouldn't say he's not, he is in the system, but he's not limited. He operates outside the world, outside the universe, in some other dimension, if I could say. You remember in the, in the sermon on when we talked about uh, in the beginning, God, right? You, we, we noted that if you could think about this universe as a box, right? And we noted that nothing within the box can account for the existence of the box itself. The universe can't account for its own existence. There needs to be something outside the box, outside the system, that brings this whole thing into existence. You see, in Egypt and in Greece, how many of you have read the ancient mythology, right, about one god made another god mad, so the other god threw a curse on this god, and then this god threw him out, right? But it's all gods acting within the system, aren't they? The one god gives birth to the world. That's a really common one in the ancient Near East, that the, the gods would give birth to the world and, and to the earth. And, but they're all operating within the system. They're all operating under its laws. They're all subject to its laws and, and, uh, and principles. But not this god. 
This God stands outside the box, outside the universe, and He speaks it into existence. This God is the cause of everything. Israel, this is your God. Your God is not one of these deities who gets angry, who falls asleep, who puts a curse on this one, who cuts off the arm of this one, right? And all these outlandish stories that we read. Your God is the one who sits outside the whole fabric of this universe and he calls it into existence by the power of his own word. This is who your God is, O Israel. Now, I also want to point out to you, dear friends, the, the times where God speaks his creation into existence. Remember at the beginning we talked about creatio prima, right? And creatio secunda, right? The first creation, which we said was verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Out of nothing God created all the stuff that exists. But now we see in these days further acts of creatio ex nihilo, right? Creation out of nothing. And I saw nine of them. Nine of them. First of all, you have the obvious one in verse 1, which we talked about as creatio prima, right? The first creation, God creates matter. But on the first day, God created light. Out of nothing, he spoke it into existence. God created the sky, right? By separating the waters from the waters. God raises up the continents. He raises up the dry land. In the fifth place, he creates vegetation. In the sixth place, he created the heavenly bodies, Again, these are not things that God formed from stuff that already existed, but He spoke it into existence. And the seventh place, God created aquatic or, or a, a life in the, in the water, right? Fish and, and things that can live in the oceans. And bird life, things that fly in the air. And in the eighth place, He creates the land animals. And ninthly, He creates man Himself. Right? Now the woman, we read that God fashioned her out of the rib of Adam. But not Adam himself. Adam was spoken. He was called into existence by the almighty power of God. Well, congregation, this teaches us, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Uh, how this story is about God. It's all about God. It's about what God did. And Israel couldn't miss that lesson. They couldn't miss this obvious lesson that God is not just within this earth, earth system. He stands outside of it and he controls it and calls it into existence. Then something briefly, congregation here, third, about the days. Because you know there's a good deal of controversy about these days. Different theologians, really from the time of Augustine, many, many years ago, uh, had different understandings of these days. However, in Scripture, uh, in our own, I think most of us will, will see these days as normal 24-hour days. Now, there are, and I think all of us understand, that there is a, a more metaphorical meaning to the word day, and I put those texts in the outline. But I think as soon as you read these, you can immediately read a difference, don't you? Our mind is just trained to immediately understand that this is not a normal day. In Genesis 2, verse 4, right? In Genesis 2, verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Right, that's in the day there is no different than saying when God created the earth and the heaven. We understand that the word day there is not speaking about a literal day. You can see it again in verse 17. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day, I really don't think that any of us stopped for a minute to think, uh, you know, 24 hours? No, no, no. We understand that's an idiom, that's a figure of speech, isn't it? When. 
But it's very different now when we come to the days of creation, isn't it? First of all, these days are numbered. These days are numbered. It talks about day one. It talks about day two. And so this is our first objection then. This is our first uh, objection to understanding these days as, as, as uh, anything other than a normal 24-hour day because they're numbered, right? It says the first day. It says the second day. And throughout Scripture, whenever, whenever a day has a number before it, we understand it to be a normal, literal day. And that's what we have here. Now, another thing that we have here is the constant, and I, and I pointed that out to you, after each day, and there was evening and there was morning. Uh, you really can't possibly understand that any other way than that this is a, a normal 24-hour day. Now, some have objected to this in, in the second place and, and said, uh, and actually I got this objection when I spoke in Grand Rapids at the Equipped Conference uh, some months back. Somebody asked me this very question. How come we interpret the book of Revelation symbolically, right? We don't, we don't interpret the 1,000 years in the book of Revelation as a literal 1,000 years, but we interpret the days and we insist on interpreting the days of creation as 24-hour days. Why can't we interpret the days of creation symbolically like we do the years in the book of Revelation? Well, there's a very clear answer to that. A very clear answer, congregation, and that is the whole genre consideration, right? You know that there are different kinds of literature in the Bible, right? We use the word genre, right? That's the fancy term for it, but it's just, it's just there's different kinds of literature in the Bible. And nobody can read the book of Revelation and think that it's the same kind of literature as Genesis 1, Right? We don't read about beasts that have the face of a lion, the wings of an eagle, and, the, and, and, and these things. Right? We, we, we know instinctively that this is symbolic. But what's symbolic in Genesis 1 verse 1 and 2 and 3 and 4? There, there, there's no indication, there's no clue in the literature itself, in the writing that we have here, that this is anything but just history. Now again, I, I've tried to make very clear to you that it's not just history. Right? It's history with a purpose. It's history to teach us about God. And it's also true that many scholars today say that, well, because it's history to teach us about God, we don't have to insist on it being historically, literally true. But that's, that's garbage, right? Our, our faith is not based on some myth, on, on like a, the tooth fairy or something like that, right? Our, our religion is based on real historical events. And that's why God gave us this story, to teach us these things. So, there's a very difference in the kind of literature that we see in the book of Revelation that leads us to interpret it symbolically from the literature that we have here in the book of Genesis. Now, there are other scholars, congregation, and I don't mean to uh, throw them under the bus, as it were. There are, are good, godly men. Uh, I'll just mention some names like Hugh Ross and Walter Kaiser. These are men who have a real love for Scripture. They have a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. They've written books and they interpret these days as long eons of years. I don't think they're correct, but uh, I do want to uh, point out that uh, this is not an issue that we should uh, condemn them for, right? Disagree with them, certainly, but not to condemn them for it. Uh, that's not appropriate. Uh, and, in fact, congregation, there can even be a trick there that the devil gets us so to focus on these controversial matters that we miss the obvious matter, Right? that this is to teach us about God himself. And so let's not get so caught up, in, in, in I, and I have to say that at the seminary, 
when I worked there, we would get people who would come in so vigorously combative on this issue that they would, uh, I thought they, that they, they, they missed the bigger parts of what Genesis 1 is here to teach us. So at any rate, we understand these to be normal, literal 24-hour days and an actual creation week from day one. And some have said, well, there was no sun. How could there have been a day? Well, the whole story is miraculous, congregation. The whole story is a miracle. To me, it's no issue. To how, how could there have been a day when there was no sun? I'm sure God took care of all those details. And he intends for us to understand this as a normal day. And one last point on this, and I found this actually to be really interesting as I read this, uh, studied this this week. Do you, under, do you know, congregation, that most Hebrew scholars, most scholars of the Hebrew language and people who uh, interpret this text understand these days as normal 24-hour days? Now, they don't believe it themselves, right? They're not evangelicals in the sense that they hold to the truth and the infallibility of God's word. But they're saying this creation myth that is given us in Genesis 1, they understand it to be a myth, right? But even they interpret it as normal 24-hour days. Now, of course, that's not an option for us to understand it as a myth. But I found it interesting that even they, when, they, when, when you might say they didn't have an ax to grind, understood it the way that it should be understood. It's a shame that they don't actually believe it. But to me, that was a pretty solid, reliable clue that we interpret this passage correctly when we interpret it literally. Well, congregation, then in the fourth place, this is Israel's theology, and I've said enough about that so far uh, that you, I think, understand now the message that God teaches his people that he is not a player, that he is not simply an, a, 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 another personality in this story. Right? He's not just... A, a, a piece on the chessboard that's getting moved around. He lives and he exists outside this universe and he acts from without upon it. And that is the lesson that Israel learned. All the 1,400 deities of the Egyptian religion are nothing. They're idols. They're mere names. God is the God. I think about Isaiah, right? In Isaiah 40, he says, Behold your God. Behold your God. He said that to the children of Israel in those days, and now he says it to us. Here in this church congregation, he says it to us. Behold your God. And my application, my only application this this morning, is the earth is a temple. The earth is a temple. Now, it is not a temple to the redemptive work of God. It is not a a temple that teaches us about Christ and his love and his, uh, his saving blood. But for all that, congregation, it is a temple to the power and the majesty and the transcendence of God. And for myself and my wife this week, as we stood uh, in these different parks in the Canadian Rockies, and we saw these mountains with the lakes nestled in the valleys, our breath was taken away by the beauty and the incredible majesty of the scene that was spread before us. There was one point, actually one of the very first hikes that we took, and we were hiking along, And at first it seemed actually rather drab. It was just a forest that we were hiking through. But as we came around this bend and we were going up and the forest cleared, and as we came around that bend, it was unforgettable. It was unforgettable. And I I say this for myself, but I'm sure you've all been there, right, and seen different things like this. when When you see it spread out before you, this happened to be in Waterton Park, 
uh, east of or west of Lethbridge, and and the, the lake in the valley and the mountains. I it was just overwhelming to me that this is a temple, this is a church. And don't misunderstand me again. I'm not saying that this is God's special revelation to us. It's not. It's it's deficient in that respect, right? Actually, this temple is much greater than that temple. But what you see with your eyes is so incredible and is so breathtaking that you, you, you can't help but say, Lord, our Lord, how great is thy name in all the earth. And that's what it's meant to lead us to. That's what the creation story here in Genesis 1, but when we see it with our eyes, is meant to lead us to God's feet. It is meant to lead us into his presence. Does it do that for you, congregation? My wife and I were discussing that, actually, that, again, to try to think of seeing this, but not with a Christian worldview, not with an understanding that God created this. And the beauty of it faded immediately. Because then it's just a happy coincidence that two plates of the earth kind of ground together and the one got pushed up and so on and so forth. But for a Christian to stand there and to see that, right, is you are, you are led into the presence of God by it. And that's appropriate. Calvin, again, had, had so, many, so many places in his, in his writings where he talks about this. But Calvin sometimes talks about the creation as a theater. Now, there's so much filth in the theaters of today that we, we tend to miss this one. But what Calvin is saying, again, is that God is on the stage here. And that when we come into the beauty of creation, we are led into the presence of God. Now, our confession, our confession also says something about this. And I would read that to you. I put the, I put the, uh, the key phrase there, a most beautiful book, but let me read this to you. Our Belgic Confession says in Article 2, it's asking by what means God is made known to us. And it says by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, which is before our eyes as a most elegant book, wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many characters or letters leading us to see clearly the invisible things of God, even his everlasting power and divinity, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1. Well, I hope, congregation, and, I, and I'm sure you have eyes to see and to read this book. Because this is, a, this is an amazing book. And the, and the beautiful progress or sequence here, congregation, is that when we see the glory of God, we are led to worship. The one leads to the other, doesn't it? It leads. When we see the glory and the majesty, we are led to worship. That's what you have in the book of Revelation, right? Where it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Now, there's worship, isn't it? But why? Why? Now, there's so many things we worship God for. But in this particular verse, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you, created all things. And because of your will, they exist and were created. You see how creation led the author, the Apostle John, into the, to, to the feet of God to worship and to glorify him. And congregation, that is the highest exercise the human mind can ever engage in. The most noble exercise that any human can perform is worship.
is worship. And so God is so worthy to be worshipped, dear friends. And the creation that is spread before us leads us into his presence. But also this story. This story in a special way. Because these things work together. When we, when we see the mountains or when we see a stream or when we see any kind of beauty, right? We always in our minds are knowing that God is the great artist. God is the great creator. And I bring back to your minds as well. Remember the quote that I gave you last week from, or two weeks ago from Kuiper, right? Where Kuiper said that when we see the beauty of God's creation, we see the faint lines of the original creation. And it's all besmirched and corrupted under sin. But even in this creation, we see the faint lines of it. And it leads us to think about the new heaven and the new earth which is coming. Because congregation, if I can stand and see the beauty of what we saw last week and of what you've seen in your life, then can we imagine what it must be when we are brought into the new heavens and the new earth and where this creation will be completely restored and where sin will be erased, no more tears and no more suffering. That too, congregation, is where the beauty of God's creation must lead us. And I pray that it will do so. And may God bless this word to us. Let us pray. Lord, we have come into your temple uh, this morning. And in this temple, Lord, we can hear of both general revelation and we can receive and read your special revelation. But Lord, there are those times in our life when we have come into the earthly temple of your glory in creation and where we see this most elegant book, this most beautiful book, where we see the letters written and we are, we are struck with amazement and astonishment at the beauty of your creation. And Lord, we know as Christians we can view this creation as your artistry. And so we're so thankful, O oh God, that you have, in your love and mercy, given us this worldview, given us this belief, so that we don't have to look at it as the mere happenstance of, of tectonic plates in the, in the earth's crust and, and, and so on and so forth. As true as that all may be, but we can see, Lord, your fingerprint upon it, that we can be led into your presence and that we can be led ultimately, Lord, to see that this is just a faint outline of what the new heaven and new earth will be. Lord, I pray that you would bless us then as we contemplate these things. Bless our time together also this evening as we gather under your word once more. And may the entrance of your words give light. And we ask all these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our creator. Amen.